Hey, Village Church, Pastor Mark here. So glad you are with us. Man, it is crazy. We are going to be ending off the first chapter of the Gospel of John today. That's nuts. I know you all thought it would take longer than this. Here we are at the end of January, and we're already done the first chapter of the Gospel of John. So good. And hopefully you are uh, just hearing the voice of God through it and calling you to things. We've been talking about this the identity of Jesus, discipleship and response to him. That continues today. So John chapter one, uh, and we're gonna pick it up in verse 47 where we left off at 46 uh, last time. And so it says this, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, uh, behold, he says, again, uh, this is a word that uh, uh, John the Baptist used about Jesus, got this emphatic behold, right? So not only are people excited about Jesus, Jesus is excited. And uh, he is a, you know, uh, Dallas Willard talks about the idea that Jesus Christ, we oftentimes don't think about this, he's the smartest man that ever lived. Um, uh, there, there's a book by a, a guy named um, uh, uh, Dan Ortland, and it talks about uh, how Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart and how he, he's there. And it's, it's talking about the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. And this idea that Jesus is for us, Jesus is compassionate, Jesus is watching, and he's actually a God that is for us to such a point. He, point, he points out in the book that there's only one time in, in the, two, in the you know, 89 chapters of the gospels or however many, there's one time where Jesus tells us about his own heart. And it's Matthew chapter 11, where he says, I am gentle and lonely in heart. One time. And it's this idea that if you want to know what drives me, if you want to know what wakes me up in the morning, if you want to know how I feel about you, I'm gentle and lonely in heart. I'm for you. I can take your suffering on myself because he goes on to say, my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light in that passage. The idea that I'm not looking down on you like a vengeful, like picture Jesus as he walked around and did ministry. He was for people. He was compassionate for people. He loved people. He served people. He laughed with people. He told stories. He would, I mean, he was, and so he looks and he says, behold, right? Like we don't picture Jesus doing like, behold, you know, but this is what he does. He says, behold. And then this is fascinating. What does he say about him? He says, he's an Israelite. I'm going to come back to that in a sec. Indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, now you and I, uh, we might miss this because if again, you're, if, you're, if your mind and your heart is not steeped in the Old Testament story, then we miss the irony of this thing. So what is an Israelite? We just kind of pass by that. We're like, all right, he's a Jew, I guess. But the word Israel came back from the book of Genesis, came from the story told of who? His name was Jacob, all right? So Jacob gets his name turned into Israel. Now, Jacob, literally his name means deceit, right? So when you read Genesis, go read Genesis, pick it up in chapter about 23, 24, you start to get the story of Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau were twins that were born from Isaac. They were Isaac, so you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So they were Isaac's kids. Jacob and Esau are born. And uh, Esau comes out hairy and Jacob is grabbing his heel. And so they come and actually my, my buddy Shant, um, I've told you about him. He uh, started a burger joint 
called the Burgers Priest years ago. And now he started a pizza joint. And within that, he's getting into making donuts. And he's making these fantastic Californian donuts, gonna blow up, gonna be crazy. But anyway, the name of his donut shop, <laughs> it's called Harry and Heels. And it's a picture of a big hairy guy and a guy behind him grabbing his heel because he's basing it on Jacob and Esau. So here you go. So you got Harry and Heels coming out, right? And the, the parents look and they name this guy Jacob. And literally in the Hebrew, the, the text tells us it, it, his main name means deceiver. And he goes on, of course, to deceive everybody and deceive Esau and deceive Isaac out of Esau's birthright. He see all of these things that he does. Jacob is literally, he's a deceiver, deceiver, deceiver until he wrestles with God and so on. And so the deceiver gets his name changed to Israel and he becomes the father in that way of all the descendants of the people of Israel, the people of God. And so he's known as a deceiver. And so here's Jesus and he's saying, here's an Israelite, talking about Nathaniel. Here's an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And here's what I love about it. It's one of my favorite conversations in the gospels because you get Jesus being jacked up, but he's just lighting up about this guy. How often do you have that? Oftentimes we get lit up about Jesus, but having Jesus be lit up about him. There's no deceit in this guy. And malice is a very important part of our life. We, we could construct things in our heart that are malicious, that are against somebody. But I think there's a difference, as I've said to staff in the past who sat in front of me, not in a mean way, but when they're sitting in front of me and I'm trying to hold them account for something and maybe something they've done wrong or something that they, you know, I, they'll say, hey, but I, but I wasn't doing it like to hurt anyone. And, and I've said to them in the past, I know that there's a difference between incompetence and malice, right? I'm not saying you're malicious or you're twisting your mustache trying to ruin anyone's life, but you are incompetent. And so there's a difference. So here's the thing, no deceit. This is a guy with a pure heart. This is a guy who, who doesn't maliciously try to ruin people's lives. And you start to think about your own life in, re, in reflection of Nathaniel. Are you someone who not only may, you, you might do fine things, but you do them maliciously, or you might do evil things, but you do them maliciously. Or are you someone that Jesus could say, you're without deceit. You're not maliciously out to ruin people's lives. And what I love about this is he's jacked for them. He's, he, this is like Jesus in heaven is going to be like, Aaron, come here. Look, this is the woman who was a prayer warrior. This is the woman who raised her kids so well. Look, behold, uh, an Israelite with, with great competency to raise children. Hey, Brian, Brian, look at Brian. This guy, this guy knew how to raise money. When he raised that money, he would give it to the church and he'd give it to missionaries and he'd give it to help build village churches, $30 million building. Ding. He, he did these things. Amazing. And look at this one. Sarah, Sarah, you did that soup kitchen. You served the kids in, in Uganda. You, you know, look at, these, look at these guys. He's, he's celebrating them. It's beautiful. Jesus is for us. And so often we picture heaven's going to be like, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. Behold, in Israel, like I'm jacked about this person. Can you think about that in regard to where you start with people when you start telling them about your faith? Oftentimes we start with, you're a sinner, and I'm going to tell you the solution. What if we started with God is for you? He celebrates you and I celebrate you. You are, you are doing great things in your life. I saw what you did with this. I saw what you did with that. You know, um, 
read uh, 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 Carnegie's book, a very famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He talks about the idea of how do you draw a bee? You draw a bear, you draw a bear with honey. You don't draw a bear with telling them what they've done wrong in their life all the time. You draw them to a sweetness and to a thing. And, and, and Jesus is affirming this guy. And, and maybe next time you do evangelism, you should think about being excited about the person and starting with that. Now, there's another piece of this you got to think about. There's a bunch we could take out of here. He's an Israelite that needs to come to Jesus. The people who need to come to Jesus, and this guy's without deceit and he still needs Jesus. The people who need to come to Jesus aren't just sinners. They're the righteous people. They're the religious people. So some of you have been watching this, you've been going to church your whole life. And you've, you've never done a bad, you've never watched a bad movie, you've never sworn, right? As sometimes I say, except for like Christian swear words, like, oh, fung mung or whatever. Like you, <laughs> you, you, uh, you know, you're raising your kids right. You've never, you always give, you always, you know. The problem with that is there's a lot of people who attend First Baptist Texas that are going to hell because they, they don't, they haven't actually met Jesus. They're without deceit and they're Israelites in the sense that they're religious people. They're, these aren't pagans. Jesus isn't talking to pagans yet. He's talking to the people, the Jewish people who are already, they're already reading their Bibles. They're already going to synagogue. They're already, and, 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 and that's what's scary about this is you could go to church your whole life and think you know him, but you don't, you don't actually know him. And, and he, there's, there's like the older brother and the younger brother both need to come to know Jesus. And so, um, now here's the other thing about this. Nathaniel, um, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other, the, what's, what are called the synoptic gospels, the other three gospels, um, he's not listed in the list of the disciples. You need to read John in order to know anything about Nathaniel. And what I take from that is that it doesn't mean he's not important. It doesn't mean God doesn't care about him. It doesn't mean... Um, it means here's John elevating him to say he's a regular Joe. This is why, uh, I'll explain it this way. You all know I'm Lord of the Rings fans by now. You kind of wait every week maybe for a Lord of the Rings or a C.S. Lewis reference. Um, but when I watch, because I'm watching those movies again with my kids and when I'm watching them, what I realized, because I was pitching to my friend the other day about why we should watch them with the kids. And, and my, my main pitch that grabbed his attention was, you know what the hero, you know who the hero of that story is? The hero of the whole Lord of the Rings story and how they get that ring to Mount Doom is not Frodo and it's not Aragorn and it's not the wizard Gandalf. It's Samwise, Samwise Gamgee, the friend who says, I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. And he keeps him from the temptation and he keeps him safe and he gets him there. He's the hero of the whole story. What I love about that story, see, you can watch Marvel movies and I love Marvel movies, don't get me wrong. But here's where I love things like Lord of the Rings more than that is that it's not superheroes that win the day. It's regular, ordinary folk who have no superpowers that need to do it. It's the hobbits running around. It's them who need to, and they're humble. And in the end, everyone bows to them. And it's like this beautiful biblical image that like the humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled. Everything's gonna turn in the kingdom. And it's the humble people. It's the regular people, the Nathaniels of the world, the regular Joes that God is gonna to use to do great things. There's a campaign right now in light of some uh, recent pastors that have got into trouble and fallen into sin and cheated on their spouses and, and got fired from their jobs recently. And uh, there's this campaign, make pastors uncool again, right? And I kind of get it because it's like, remember when pastors were like, 
Yeah, you'd listen to them, but they weren't like the people you wanted to hang out with. You know, they were kind of like, <laughs> like they're up there and, hey, buddy, I love you. you know, it's like, you, you know, there's no, this guy's probably never gonna, you know, be at the club cheating on his spouse with 12 girls. Like, this probably not gonna happen with this guy. You know, there's like, and so there's this whole campaign, make pastors uncool again. And I kind of, like, I don't actually think it's probably the solution because there's a lot of pastors who are not cool who get into trouble. But the point is, is that, uh, there's a piece of it that I love. There's a humility that I love about it where it's regular Joes that God's gonna use for great things. And we gotta understand that, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I'm not cool. Like, I'm glad I, like, I would rather, uh, celebrities, like my buddy asked me one day to take a picture. We saw Fred Couples, who most of you probably don't know, but he's a famous golfer. And we're in a grocery store one day. My buddy's like, let's take a picture together. Let's take a potato. And I'm like, no way. I'm not, I'm like, I'm gonna run the other way. I would rather like sit at home and, and read a book about World War II and how the bombing planes, you know, destroyed London than to hang out with Biebs. All right, to be honest, I love you, Biebs, but I mean, it's not really my, and so it's like, there's this, there's this regular Joe thing about what God does and who he uses to do amazing things, which is beautiful. And we see it in the life of Nathaniel. Okay, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? He, he starts to sense like this, like there's a supernatural thing about Jesus. He's starting to catch up. How do you, you know my name, you know I have no deceit. How do you know me? Um, here's what's terrifying about this, by the way. You know that Jesus, like everyone else can see what you do. Like when you have clothes on and when you walk around and you like, Jesus sees us at all times he doesn't know the facade we put out there for everybody else. He knows us. Like who we are in the dark when no one's looking. And not only that, he knows what we think and how we feel. Like, and I'm not saying to you this in a, in a scary way, like, oh my gosh, you know, it's everything. Jesus scares me. No, no, no. It's like, he know he really knows you. Like, do you, you know, like that, that great story, I think it's in the gospel of Luke where, you know, there's this woman and she's like kind of a woman. I think she's a prostitute. And yeah, she comes and she washes Jesus' hair, uh, washes his feet with her hair and perfume. And, and the disciples are like, get this woman out of here. She's like a woman of the night. We don't want her. And Jesus says, do you see this woman? You know what I love behind that? He's not just saying, hey guys, do you have eyeballs? Are you all, are you blind? Does anyone see here? He goes, do you see this woman? Like, do you see her? Who she really is, her hurts, her pains, her habits, her hangups, the things that have destroyed her. Do you see her? Because if you saw her, then you'd have a heart for her and you'd have a compassion for her. That's what I'm saying. But Jesus sees what you think and who and the, and the thing behind the thing and the motive behind the motive. He sees it all. And that's what, that's what Nathaniel's putting his finger on. How do you know me? Like, how do you know? I've never met you. And yet you know me. And he does. And it says, Jesus answered him, uh, before Philip called you, so Philip's the guy who brought Nathaniel to Jesus. Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree and I saw you. Remember this theme of saw? I saw you before you saw me. It's a beautiful thing. I saw you before you saw me. J. Ramsey Michaels, who's a New Testament scholar, says this. Before Philip called to you is to establish priority. What counts is not that Philip found Nathaniel, but that Jesus had already found him. And Philip has been acting as Jesus' agent consciously or not. Yeah, that's beautiful. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. 
People who are naturally religious find difficulty in understanding the horror of such a revelation. Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. And Lewis says this to me, who said he was the most reluctant convert in all of London. To me, as I was then, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. Point is, is what is happening here? I already knew you before you found me. I already searched you out. And so uh, Gerald Borchardt says this, Jesus finds Philip. Philip in turn finds Nathaniel and Nathaniel says we found him, but it's intriguing to ask the very simple question, who really finds who? Christians frequently say they found Christ or found faith, but from Jesus' perspective in these stories, it alters such a self-centered view of salvation. It was not Jesus who was lost, Bertrand says. And so here's the hound of heaven working on us. You look back at your salvation story and the kinds of pivots and things and a parent that did this and a move there and I met them and then this happened and I got thousands of those little steps you go back that Jesus was working. There's another cool thing about this. Before Philip called you, I already knew you. It's beautiful. And then he says, under the fig tree, you know what the, I mean, we just gonna read that. We're like, whatever, that was just a tree. Uh, man, everything's going on here. To Jews, the fig tree had all these Old Testament images of, of Israel and they'd go under the fig tree to find security and protection. But the Talmud, which was a, uh, it wasn't part of the Bible, but it's part of what the rabbis would tell the young Jewish men to do is it would, it would be teachings. A Talmud were a bunch of teachings and they, they, would, they would instruct the young men to go under fig trees uh, because of the shade and to sit daily and read the scriptures. And so there's this piece of, what were you doing under the fig tree, Nathaniel? You weren't playing, you were not playing Game Boy, right? You weren't having a Slurpee. You were reading about me, the thing that a few verses ago, the guys said the Bible, the Moses and the prophets, it was all about me. And you were under the, you were under the fig tree reading the Bible, and you were wondering whether God could ever know and how to know God, all of these beautiful things. And Jesus takes this young man. And I love that because I have a heart for young men. I think culture can be positively or negatively affected by men in such a way that I look at the young men, even the young boys of my friends around me and I kind of been saying to them, like, I'm with you. If I can help you in any way, raise these boys who have no identity anymore. So much of culture is built around not understanding what to do with young men. School, I've, I've seen so many parents sit and just say, school, education, the present system seems to not know what to do with men. It seems to kind of look at men as like failed girls, like young boys, they don't know what to do with them, identity and, and all of these. These are massive questions and we watch a culture derail. You can read the, the, the one report by Zimbardo called The Demise of Guys and see the porn and see the uselessness and see the dysfunction and see the abuse and see the violence and see the gangs. And Jesus looks at this young man and says, I got a vision for your life. You can change the world, you can do amazing things. Don't derail your life in gangs and nonsense and be, be a man that stands up and, and fights for something and leads and loves and serves and sacrifices, that learns the ways of Jesus. 
It's a beautiful vision for how you could affect Canada or affect whatever country you're watching from. We need a generation of young men who've been found by Jesus, who sit under trees and study the text and go out and live a life that changes the world under the leadership of Christ rather than wasting it on video games and nonsense. Jesus will give you an identity and a vision. You knew who I was. I knew who you were before you knew who you were. And I invited to do something special in your life. Do you want to take that invitation? That's what he's saying. Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, Rabboni, Rabboni, you are the son of God. I mean, there's a beautiful, amazing new title. You are the king of Israel. I, I was sitting there reading and wondering about the vision for my life. And you came in and gave me a vision. You, you read me out. Here's the man who understands my dreams. You are the son of God. You are the king. I will follow you to the end. I will go with you to that. You are my leader. You're everything to me. You understood my dreams. It's a beautiful thing that God has birthed in all of us, these dreams. And my prayer for you is that you can rediscover them for yourself. And so Nathaniel's responding and going, man, you, you so became part of my life. I, have nothing, I, I can do nothing else but offer you my life. And so he said, it says, verse 50, pick it up. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? Like, so what's, what's he's pressing, what's the motive behind, you've come to believe. Beautiful. See, see here's, here's the thing for us. We oftentimes, most of the time, celebrate when a person believes in Christ, right? We, we are... We are jacked up when someone shows interest in Jesus, gives their life to Jesus, walks down the altar, raises their hand, gives their life to him. We get excited and that's beautiful when they believe and we celebrate that. But, but Jesus here and in a hundred other stories in the gospels asks a further question that's harder, which is the question of why? The question of, of, of motive. Why did you believe? Because I know people who've become Christians for lots of reasons, to get that girl, to get some business connections, that maybe he'll take away my sickness or my fear of death, you know, whatever. The question of motive behind belief is fascinating. And he's saying, I want you to explore why you even came to this belief, Nathaniel. Not just that you believed in me, but why? That's a motivating, that's a massive question. What are your motives behind the motives for why you're becoming a Christian. And you got to ask yourself that every day. Why am I following Jesus today? Why am I trusting in Jesus? Why? What's the why? Just the self-examination. It's fascinating. And then he, but then his point is, because I saw you under the fig tree, <clears throat> you believe. You're going to see greater things than these. Meaning, have you believed because you think there was a, a supernatural miracle thing where I could kind of read your brain and I was hovering above you. I, I was like, you know, had a ring on like the Hobbit. I was kind of looking at you invisibly. I went, okay, fig tree. And then I zick, took it off. I went, Nathaniel by the fig tree. Like, do you think, is that why you so quickly went, oh my goodness, you're my king. Is that why? He challenges it, not because we shouldn't look for miracles in our life. I think we should. I think the book of Hebrews says, 
People will believe because of miracles. I think all the way through the Gospel of John, we're going to see it in the, ne- in the next couple of stories. They saw and they believed. There were signs and people believed. Great, great, great. He's challenging up front the idea of basing your whole life and faith and your Christian experience on seeing miracles. He doesn't want that. Because they're a tenuous foundation in which to build your life. Because the question is, what, what happens when the miracle doesn't happen? I didn't grow up in church, so I didn't tend to uh, have a lot of conversations around the dinner table about miracles. But I know those of you who did, you, you talked about it, right? God showed up here. He healed that woman of her tumor. He got that guy his parking space at Walmart that he prayed for. Oh boy, that, that house that the Joneses got. Can you believe how that house got through? They, were, they weren't even looking and it came on. There's, it's kind of dinner conversation for those of you who grew up in the church. And that's beautiful and that's good. And it's great when God does a miracle and he heals this beautiful thing and we need to pray and believe for that. The problem is with every miracle that's done, there's a backsided hurt to it sometimes, which is, Where was my miracle when I needed it? Why didn't didn't the tumor disappear in in my aunt's body or my best friend's or my mom's? Or what about when I needed it or my kid needed it or my finances needed it or my spouse needed it? What about, we shouldn't miss the fact that there aren't more miracles in Jesus' life, then we shouldn't miss the idea that Jesus did probably, depending on how you count them, 36 miracles in his lifetime. I mean, he did a lot more, but the gospels collectively give us 36. Of course, John tells us he did a lot more, but we didn't write them down. 36 miracles, but what hit me about that when I saw that number is like, why not more? Why only 36, three years of ministry, 33 years of life? That's like, if he did three years of ministry, that's 10 a year. Why not more? Um, I'm about to come out with this book, The Problem of Jesus, in a month. And uh, can, I, can, I, can, I tell, can I read you? Don't tell Zondervan, okay? Shh, it's just between the two of us. I'm going to read you a paragraph or two from that book where I try to speak to this exact question. It's in the, it's in the uh, chapter on miracles. So I'm going to give you a little sneak peek, right? You can order your book at uh, amazon.com. <laughs> okay, uh, listen to this. Why 36 when he could have done so many more? Why so few? I think it's because Jesus knows something that we know but refuse to embrace, that in life, there are no easy, quick answers. When we face demons in our lives, the answer most often is not deliverance, but discipleship. The porn addiction or shopping addiction doesn't just disappear overnight. It takes time and hard work. The road to transformation is tough. It's not felt in a power encounter or a flashy instant, but hard fought in the dark when no one is looking on our knees amid sweat, tears, and confusion. But don't despair, God is there. Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, says this. Why miracles at all? Did they make any difference? 
I readily concede that Jesus, with a few dozen healings and a handful of resurrections from the dead, did little to solve the problem of pain on this planet. But that's not why he came. Nevertheless, it was in Jesus' nature to counteract the effects of the fallen world during his time on earth. As he strode through life, Jesus used supernatural power to set things right, which were wrong. The miracles give me a glimpse of what the world was meant to be and still hope that one day God will right its wrongs. To put it mildly, God is no more satisfied with this earth than we are. Jesus' miracles offer a hint of what God intends to do about it. Meaning, they're this beautiful revelation of God and picture of what God intends to do with your life even. But he's got a much, in that, got a much bigger story than making your 80 years the best. He's trying to show you what the next 80 million are gonna look like and the 80 million after that. And so sometimes the miracle doesn't happen. And does that mean he doesn't exist? No, that's his hesitation with Nathaniel. Don't base your whole life on experiences of miracles. This is why, by the way, philosophically as a church, we, we do this and take you through the scriptures. I had a friend ask me on a podcast recently why I do that rather than just getting up and kind of preaching themes. And I said very simply, it's because, A, I'm gonna get hit by a truck one day and be done. But the bottom line is, what do I want you when you get that diagnosis or, or lose that family member, loved one, and you wake up and you can't even think, you can barely drag yourself out of bed. What is gonna put steel in your spine in the midst of the suffering of life? What's the thing that's gonna shape and form your heart and your mind more than anything? Not fun sermons and getting together at services and making sure you feel energetic because if that was it, then you'd need to hit all the time. You need to come back to another service and let me get up there and stomp around and make you laugh and share my stories that all start with the letter J or whatever. And you'd be addicted to that and you'd need that. The reason I want, I want your life to be built on the God, behind, the word behind the word, the scriptures that could steal in your spine even when I'm gone and you can't get together and have an experience and, and feel it and you know it. And it gives you the hope in the midst of that. You build your life on this rather than the addictive back again, back again, reality of experience, which can lead you astray at times. This is why Jesus is saying, be very careful not to build your whole life on the feelings that experiences of miracles will give you because they run out over time. Sooner or later, God's answer to the question of whether we need to die and can you heal that disease is, no, it's time to take you now. And if that's what you build your whole life on, then it will crumble in the midst of pain and challenge. So he says, verse 51, he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you, you think that miracle is great? I got a deeper miracle to tell you about. You ready for this? This is awesome. This is how it ends. I say to you, you're gonna see greater things than these. What are these greater things? Turning water into wine? Next chapter? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, walking on water, feeding 5,000. Yeah, yeah, it's good, it's good, it's good, awesome but I've got some, a different thing. You're gonna see heaven open. Oh, really? I'd like to see that. What's that about? And the angels of God, oh, this sounds exciting. Ascending and descending on the son of man. What is that? 
Is that, are those crazy miracles? We're going to see angels dancing around on you? What? This is going to be crazy. Talk about basing your life on miracles. No, 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 no. He's saying, I got a greater miracle that you're going to have to look to and define your life by. You know what it is? In, uh, in Genesis 28, Jacob, remember Jacob we were talking about? The deceiver. An experience happens called Jacob's ladder where angels are climbing up and down a ladder and Jacob is in, uh, is in a place where he's meeting with God and it's recognized as, as the locus of the presence of God was this place where heaven and earth were meeting on Jacob's ladder between Jacob and God. And this was a very famous story in Israel at the time where the angels are going up and down and there was the presence of God was there and he was meeting with, with, with Jacob. There's a special moment. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, listen, you wanna know where the locus of the presence of God is now? It's me, the son of man. I'm the place where heaven and earth meet. You wanna go up a ladder and get to heaven? You wanna go up a ladder and get to God, the place where God and humankind come together as one, the only place you wanna get there? I'll tell you the only way to get there. The son of man is now the place. I'm the ladder. And so Leon Morris says this, the son of man is the means of bridging the gap between heaven and earth. The son takes the place of the ladder. It is through Jesus that human souls can mount the ladder which goes to heaven. He's going, I'm the only place that happens. He is answering the ultimate question of humankind that all religion is trying to answer. How do I get to enlightenment? How do I get to heaven when I die? How do I get to paradise? How do I get to all these questions that all these religions are trying to answer? He goes, I'll tell you how to get to God, the true God. It's through the son of man. It's through me. And now I'm gonna give you 20 chapters. I'm gonna tell you all about me and how that all works. Are you looking for the ladder somewhere else in yourself, trying to get your way to heaven, other religions trying to get your way to heaven. Jesus is going, no, no, no. Exclusively me, give yourself to me. So Lord, I pray that we have the courage to do that, that everyone watching this would see the ladder between heaven and earth, the place where you dwell, the calling of you to draw us to yourself is only in this one that Nathaniel fell in love with and that the story is trying to pull love and affection out from us. And I pray that that happens, that our hearts and minds and souls are stirred toward you, son of man. All the titles that you have in this, in this first chapter are unbelievable. There's 20 things you're called. The word, the light, the lamb, the king of Israel, the son of God, the son of man, the rabbi, the Messiah, all these beautiful things about you, just this litany of things. I pray that we learn to relate to you in all of those titles. That one of the great points of discipleship of our life is to figure out how to cherish and treasure you the way that John 1 has cherished and treasured you and presented you to us, all the fulfillment of all of life and everything in it you would become the center rather than us. God, Holy Spirit, do that work among us. Let our hearts soar for that very thing. Let this chapter inspire that in us and change us for the rest of our life to our dying breath. 
where we take Jesus up the ladder to meet with you finally and experience the pleasure and delight that you offer us in him in ways we can only imagine now. Do that among us and let us be faithful unto the end to the one that bridges the gap between heaven and earth. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen.